Hey everyone, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm Ash Milton, managing editor of Palladium Magazine. Uh, we're talking today with Avidis Maradian, uh, lovely known to us as Avi, so I'll go with that. Uh, and today we're going to talk about his Palladium 4 piece. Uh, this is going to be the first of a few episodes where we'll be talking with different writers who contributed to Palladium 4. The theme of that print magazine is Cultivating Elites. Uh, and as I'm sure most of you know, every quarter Palladium puts together a special print edition, which we make available uh, as a gift to our subscribers and supporters. Uh, it includes original custom art and uh, additionally an anthology of some of our best work on whatever the topic is for that quarter. If you're interested in this one, you can still subscribe. Uh, there's details at palladiumag.com slash 04 print. So 04 hyphen print. So Avi, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Avi has been a regular writer over the years, uh, also someone who's given a lot of support to the editorial team. Uh, you know, in, in our community, we uh, have a lot of close collaborators who often help us find new stories or steer in new directions with uh, some of our, our worldview, some of the topics we're covering. Uh, he's definitely one of those. So I'm glad to have him here on the podcast uh, Avi, is there anything else you want to kind of include in your bio for listeners? Um, thanks for thanks thanks for inviting me, Ash. It's great to to join the Palladium podcast. I think the last one I did this was way before the pandemic in um, in 2019. So it's a throwback and it's a reminder of like just how much things have changed in so little time. In terms of bio, um, well. I come from the startup world, but um, it's very, very specific one. I've been working in emergent markets for the last five years. That's been my um, that's been my professional background. I, I've worked in different uh, different areas of technology, property technologies, but now I work in medical tech. Uh, I've worked in China, and, and I'm now based in Singapore. Yeah, and your your career has been basically all all over the Pacific. I mean, you and I originally met in Vancouver, you know, and 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 you've kind of gone over all over the place since then. Right now, we're recording this. Both of us are in Brazil, although in different cities. Uh, I think we'll we'll probably get to some backstory behind that. But you know, as you're saying, the last two years I think have been a time where we we've basically had a lot of progress, let's say, on on how we're thinking about some of these topics, including things like crime, things like the underworld, and this this concept of the frontier, um, which are all things we're going to get to. I think probably an interesting place to start for this is going to be the origins of this piece. For, for listeners, the title of the piece is The Secret is Crime. Uh, it's now available on the website as well, so you can check it out there. Uh, but this piece, op- oh, this piece opens in China, but you know, as we were kind of talking about before the podcast, in some ways, the real birthplace of this line of thought is Macau and some of your traveling there and around the country. So why don't you give us a bit of uh, the backstory there and kind of where your mind was at the time and, and maybe the, the, the first beginnings of how we ended up getting to this uh, very adventurous article? Um, yeah, there's there's two big threads. Um, the first is a lot of the theory here comes from uh, a French thinker called Georges Bataille. Um, I was introduced to Georges Bataille but it, by an extremely left-wing professor. And the thing which was so interesting about Bataille was how deeply steeped in religion he was for someone who was a Marxist thinker. And that 
during the 40s when he was writing got him accusations of being a fascist in fact and a collaborator so someone who's who's a left who's a leftist who's a committed marxist but who kind of goes against the orthodoxy that's that's kind of the theoretical um underpinning of some of the some of the some of the ideas in the article the second one the second thread is is just a personal story really just a blurb in the piece i don't know if you remember it's about this homage to uh the famous portuguese writer luis de camões um in macau written by uh written by a french writer luis de camões is the famous portuguese writer he is the shakespeare of the portuguese language everyone in brazil studies his works everyone across uh, in portugal studies his works in um in high school for example it, it is the quintessential it's the equivalent of shakespeare but the most interesting thing about about luis de camões is he wrote this big portuguese epic um about the portuguese nation but he wrote it in macau it was written in a grotto on the island and i happened to be in macau and it's a place that i started going to regularly now um, i uh, when i was when i when i was going through my education as a as as an engineer um i had two options that were open to me like you said a pacific career in some ways but where in the pacific all my friends of course uh, all engineers wanted to go to silicon valley a lot of them did internships at google internships at amazon this was their big dream this was what they were aspiring to i got into entrepreneurship quite randomly mostly as as a question of temperament but i became i fell under the attraction of asia very quickly um even when i was going to university i was watching like films by wong kar wai and so on so very early on i decided that you know asia was the thing which was so attractive to me that i wanted to go there it was in silicon valley i wanted to go to asia so by some again things just happened to fall into place first startup i found uh, investment and support in china so i decided to go and start and do my business in china in shanghai so a lot of the stories are and the opening stories are from that period but there's this very interesting set of rules around around foreigners in china is they have to leave the country every so often and every so often i mean like 30 days 60 days 90 days depending on very frequently and i'm like and when i first arrived i had no idea and then like a few weeks a few days before my my visa limit was that 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 stay limit was approaching i'm like oh crap i haven't booked anything i where am i supposed to go where am i supposed to fly out um and so suddenly a friend of mine suggested macau he had lived in hong kong and he said it's going to be the cheapest option available to you right now you go there for two days take a break and then come back so i go to macau and being disposed the way i am i'm not really terribly interested in casinos um there's a portuguese film that refers to macau as o fascinante las vegas do oriente the fascinating las, las vegas of the orient um and that's exactly what it is it's a lot of casinos it's very sanitized in a lot of ways a lot of chinese tourists go there to gamble because gambling is illegal in china and a lot of tourists who visit even people who are who are portuguese speaking will really just typically go to the casinos see something of a chinese city of a cantonese speaking city and just just leave um but i was curious because i i had a the friend who suggested was some someone who was just culturally more aware and he said something very interesting he said 
Um, Macau is a mix between China, Brazil, and Portugal. And that was fascinating. I mean, you don't you don't hear that often where a place in the world could be a mix of those those three very different cultures. And I was just determined to go find that in Macau. So I spent a lot of time going through the old town, uh, going to the, through the old building, just trying to find what remained of this of, 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 of the history of the place. Now, the thing about it is that very few people have a connection in Macau to the past. A lot of it, a lot of them are Cantonese speakers, they're Chinese. And Macau was settled by the Portuguese for about 500 years. Now, when you end up in a place like Macau, you see, especially historical parts, there are a lot of it. Most people go to the casinos, but it's a small part of the city. Most of the city is actually quite old. And you have these artifacts constantly on every street corner from about 500 years ago. Some of it Chinese, but there's a lot, a lot of Portuguese stuff. Um, and, the, and the most interesting thing about all of this was that the locals were living amongst the ruins of a civilization that we're not part of. And I arrived there and I would see, I would go into a chapel and there would be masses or there would be uh, dedications to uh, St. Francis, and there would be statues of Mary everywhere. There would be words in Portuguese, uh, which the locals had no idea. A lot of them come from Buddhist backgrounds or they were Cantonese speakers. So they were living amongst the ruins of a civilization that they did not fully understand. But the funny thing was that this was something that I understood. I'm French Canadian. I was raised Catholic. Um, and this was something which was extremely immediately familiar. So I had arrived in a place where the locals, the people who lived there, were more disconnected and more distant from the culture that existed there than me who had arrived there for the first time. This was a culture which was immediately very familiar. And funnily enough, just by, by, by some luck, I would always end up in these places, places where the few, re the few remaining Portuguese in Macau would always congregate. How many of these old Portuguese are there still? A couple thousand, a couple okay. thousand a over city, very small community. There's obviously a lot of schools who teach Portuguese, but the community itself is quite small. And there's very small touchstones for the community. There's a few cultural centers. Um, there's obviously the consulate of Portugal, which hosts a lot of cultural events, but a lot of it is just official events. When it comes to community life, there's only very few places that the Portuguese in Macau congregate. And when I say few thousand, I mean few thousand over a population of 800,000, right? We're talking about 1% or less than 1% of the population. And by some, by some twist of luck, I ended up in a, in a cafe called uh, Ocaravel, the, the Caravel, and it was all Portuguese. And what was so interesting was that like the old men who would just come up, have their coffee, this kind of Mediterranean lifestyle was something which was extremely familiar. And the people who were there, just the old men who were sitting there, a lot of them could have been my, could have looked like my grandfather, you know? So I had arrived at the edge of the world, had come to this strange place because of a visa problem in a communist country. And then suddenly I was in the middle of people who were, who spoke a language, which was actually quite familiar. I understood what was written, speak French. So Portuguese was very easy for me to read, even though I had, I had, I had, I don't, I, had, I hadn't studied Portuguese yet. And I, I just loved the language and the lifestyle, and I started learning the language then. 
you know, obviously uh, most of our listeners, they, they sort of have an idea of the British Empire. We're, we're kind of aware of like the Spanish heritage, especially in places like Mexico and South America. I don't think most Americans are aware of the global Portuguese Lusosphere heritage, right? And I mean, you're mentioning Macau, but we're here in Brazil, you know, even in Africa, you get countries like Mozambique, like Angola. Uh, we're talking about a really sizable global network of countries here that share this linguistic heritage, this history. And it's something that I think is not on a lot of people's radars. Uh, and, you know, like just in, in terms of the, the sort of space we're talking about here, I mean, this is a probably an even more maritime empire than the Spanish ones were, right? So if, if you're a Portuguese speaker, I mean, you, you effectively have countries on uh, several major continents where you can go and where your language is the dominant language. Yeah, and the Macau piece is so interesting because it belongs to China. Um, and and it's such a such a fascinating piece. Like there's this form of art in in in, um, in Portugal which is painted blue blue painted tiles. And you would see these blue painted tiles all over Macau with designs of with designs and personages being represented in the Chinese style. So you have a mixture here. And, and when we're talking about Africa and these things, we're talking about a truly maritime country. Like you have dishes in, in Macanese cuisine, specifically Macanese cuisine, where the ingredients and their styles are from, from Africa. You have a mixture between African and Chinese cuisines. And this is a this is an incredible island because it's uh, like something like 20 square kilometers and it has only 800,000 people. And just this one piece has Africa, Brazil, Portugal and China all in one in this uh, eclectic mixture, but an organic mixture because these people have been living side by side for 500 years. There have been African slaves on, 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 on the island of Macau since the since the 15th century, right? So this is really what a port city is when steeped in history. Hmm. So I think it might be useful then to, to start bringing this toward the overall theme of the piece. We're here in Macau. You're, you're kind of holed up here for a couple days. This is a place where pirates, where thieves, where gamblers, where opportunists, where adventurers all kind of gathered. Definitely a good setting for this this line of thought to begin but what exactly happens here what's happening uh in your thought process and the things happening around you that sort of kick off um this this uh development which ultimately leads to the piece that we have here um i mentioned the grotto and camoes camoes becomes a very inspirational figure to me because it's someone who is a writer who is someone of an intellectual who's someone who's involved in the life of thoughts and in the life of letters, but someone who, who spends his life overseas and goes on adventures, fights Arabs, defeats pirates. To me, this becomes like an ideal of what the writer is supposed to be, right? Um, in the 20th century, we developed this figure of the engaged intellectual, the communists especially do, and a lot of, and now this turns into like um, uh, the left-wing college professor that's the that's the linear descendant of that yeah so this engaged intellectual we're talking about kind of like this this 20th century 
uh, you know, uh, usually an academic, maybe sometimes a journalist, but this this idea that they're part of the respectable society, they're kind of this socially responsible figure, you know, it's this very formal, respectable thing. Uh, the kind of writers you're talking about, it sounds like, are not living that life. They're not. Uh, this is someone, Kamosh is someone who has a reputation for being reckless, for courting uh, women he shouldn't be supposed to, he isn't supposed to court. And he happens to fall in love with, with one of them. And the reason someone like Kamosh goes, would go to Asia was to make money. But in his case, he follows a woman who, who is married, who has a higher social status and is married to another man who was posted to India. So he follows her to India. And when he gets there, he finds out that she's died in the voyage. And these are voyages going from Portugal to India back then took years. So this, and it was just this incredible heartbreak. There's a word in Portuguese um, that, I, that I mentioned in my, in my Macau article from a couple of years back, the word uh, saudade. Saudade is this kind of longing um, of something which could have been, but is not, is both joy and, and sadness at the same time. Uh, so that becomes like the Portuguese literary style and expression and expression of the Portuguese nation, and Portuguese soul. Um, and it, it's obvious in, in the case of someone like Camões that he embodies this. He follows a woman to the edge of the world, hops on a ship, fights pirates in the Arabian Gulf and uh, defeats, uh, attacks all these fortresses. They meet up with the Ethiopians to aid them against against Muslim invaders. And they go through all these adventures over the years and he arrives to Asia to find the woman that he's been in love with, who's been married to another man, like, you know, a very tragic fate in a lot of ways. And he finds out that she actually died on the voyage there. Uh, but this is someone who confronts life, you know, um, he is both a victim of the circumstances, you know, he has really no choice, uh, but it is someone who displays courage, tact, who is someone who does all this with his friends, with his close, close friends, and they both, all of them just hop on and hop on the ship together and go to the edge of the world at a time when this was extremely dangerous. And he takes great pleasure in it, you know, it's the, it's not just about the tragedy, but it's, it's overcoming the tragedy and, and rising to the occasion. And it creates for an intellectual life which is worthy of respect. This is these aren't just about debates. This is this is these are people you can look up to and look up at all the challenges that they've been through and say, you know, these people have lived a life worthy of respect and consideration and their ideas are worth considering. And we're talking about a certain kind of personality here effectively, right? This is not someone who uh, you know, I, I, I don't quite know his background, but I assume that he had you know, certain expected pathways in life, and he, he effectively doesn't end up following those. Uh, and, you, you know, even uh, we're talking about like the Portuguese empire, but the sort of people who end up in places like Africa and places like Macau and places like the New World are not, you know, your established well-to-do people who are just looking for, you know, a new business venture. It's the sort of people who are opportunists. It's the sort of people who are looking for, uh, you know, they don't really have anything keeping them rooted to the old country. Uh, they don't really care about the opportunities there, but they're sort of crazy enough to go out onto these frontiers. It's a very particular kind of personality. And you, you kind of pointed out that even uh, when we're looking at a place like South America, the sort of people who are going there as conquistadors are... Uh, you know, kind of this lower nobility, some of them not even really literate, 
people with the means to to kind of make their way over and maybe gain some financial support, but with basically nothing but you know the the expected adventure, maybe the expected wealth and glory of of what's in front of them. Um, so it's a very very strange kind of psyche, but this one that appears over and over again, I think. Yeah, we should come back to the Spanish example uh, later on in this discussion. Um, but to conclude with the story of Camões, because Camões is, starts as an inspiration because I visit the place he wrote Os Luziadas, the great work of the Portuguese language. Um, but it's not what really drives home uh, the reality of, of Macau and what it represents, really. Why is it what it is? So by the grotto, um, you leave the, 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 the garden where his grotto is located, and there's a Protestant church that's no longer active. It doesn't do any masses, but there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a graveyard, a cemetery behind the Protestant church, and it's the East India Trading Company Cemetery established in the 1820s. And I just randomly start walking there after I had left. Um, I have after I had left the Camões uh, Grotto. I didn't know who Camões was, so it didn't really drive home. But it looked like this interesting 15th century, 16th century character. So I was fascinated already and just entranced by the energy of the place. But then I go into the Protestant cemetery, and th these are these graves date back to the 19th century, most of them, but there's a few from the 18th century, like from 1790, 1780, some from 1760. And a lot of, and I started reading the graves, and these are graves in English, obviously, because the people who were buried there were were, were, were Protestants, and, and there were uh, sailors, most of them. Some of them were East India Trading Company officials. and But you would see graves, and it would be something like, uh, John Hopkins, born in Boston, died in Macau, age 20. And then so-and-so, uh, midshipman or lieutenant, age 22, died in Macau from fever. Um, and then from all over, the, uh, the, the these, these, these kids from the 1790s, essentially, and, um, and some of these, back then I was, I was at that age, and I would look at them, I'm like, these people died in this island at the age that I'm visiting this place now. And I can, I can kind of understand, like, they were, they were, like, kind of in the same boat as me, you know? They were trying to make a, a life for themselves. Uh, they were doing their, their, their profession, they were exercising themselves, and then, and then they died from fever or from war or from, from whatever. There would be fires and, and there would be shipwrecks and it would just be life. And then you would have these young men buried here on this very island. And that really drove drove home, like these people were like me, and they're here now in the ground. And that's 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 where it really started. It's like you're not alone in in deciding to make this choice. There were many many before you who made this gamble, who decided to go away and go into the frontiers. And like I was lucky, you know, I came to Shanghai on a, on an airplane. These people were on ships. Uh, there was there was like yeah, some shortages, outbreaks, and so on. Uh, yeah, this kind of and thing. And it, yeah. it drove, yeah, exactly. And it's like these people existed. We have here people of my age who had lived the life that 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 is meant to be lived. This life of adventure, this life on the frontier, 
And they, there they are, all are. This is a testament to their existence. Their graves are right here. So that really was a revelation in some ways as to you know what is possible. What is possible for young men and young women of ambition and talent to do? And but the the thing is, and when we talk about René Lagan, we'll see is that you won't always succeed. And in fact, you probably won't. And this is something you have to make peace with. So, okay, we've kind of reached this point. You're you're on Macau. You are getting a growing admiration for this sort of psychology, sort of personality that existed that built places like Macau and a lot of other places around the world. Um, But this is the first step toward this, this more concrete, fleshed out thing, this realization you get about the way that both elite culture and places like criminal underworlds seem to be places where that kind of personality flourishes and that actually this is important for our society work. So why don't you kind of uh, bring us forward and, and, and tell us about how you moved from this personal experience to this this kind of more um, social observation, let's say. I, I think the piece itself is is what I would call like applicable political theory, right? It is political theory with with like this is how the practical world works you may not you may like this or may not like this but this is how the world works it's a it's practical and usable political theory and when you look at places like macau and places like brazil places like most of the americas in fact and you see that the, there's a specific class of like people who built these places and what i wanted was a theory to to understand what this phenomenon actually was. Um, now, fortunately, I had been introduced um, to Bataille's work. And Bataille's work is very interesting because he says things in, a, in his essay, The Notion of Expenditure, where says things like, actually, the meaning of a lot of our political, religious, or spiritual or higher values is based around destruction. So a lot of things which make life worth living are based around expanding and destroying things as opposed to building and constructing them. Now, we have a narrative in, especially in, 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 in the West, where it's all about like growth. It's all about building things. It's all about, you know, like this, this, this productivity mindset. And I'm, I mean, in the larger sense, like even before we had like this grift and hustler mindset, we had like, oh, you should get married and have kids and buy a house and do all these things. And this is the Western model, and you th- you think that's the Western model, model, and you think that the things which are worth living for are actually the things which you build and grow. You we talk about it; it's almost in, in, in so deeply rooted in Christianity, you know, like tending to your garden, um, and all, and you have a lot of these ideas which are inculcated into your way of thinking if you're a Westerner, but also in other places in the world, obviously. But then Bataille makes this observation that a lot of things that are worth living for, a lot of things which are great and wonderful and respectable are actually based around destruction. And that's a very profound insight. If you think about it, like things like things like non-reproductive sex, right? It's, It's a big part of the human experience. It is not productive. It is, in fact, a negation of 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 productive sexuality. Right, procreative sexuality, biological expenditure. It, it's it, exactly there's a biological cost to producing this pleasure, but it is pleasurable. Same thing goes with gambling, 
Why do people gamble and lose tons of money? It is in fact the destruction of, of the productive good which gives it meaning. And this is where human sacrifice comes from as well. This is where, where um, you know, you can even read the Christian sacrifice in this light as well. Why is it that, that you are saved? It, it is because something is destroyed, right? So these things are what would, what would be called a mystical economy. The economy of the non-physical. Um, and the, 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 the link is that elites gain legitimacy, elites, religious, and things which are respectable are engaged in this non-production. They're in fact engaged in destruction. That is, this is where the legitimacy comes from. This is why art is important. Art is a way of, for elites to convert productive assets like money into non-productive assets like art. That's where legitimacy comes from. It comes from the destruction of productive goods. Yeah, I, I actually I want to just sort of really highlight that point you're making there because I think it's important, right? We, um, I I think that there's this uh, let's call it a prejudice. Maybe it's like a middle class prejudice, right? Where it's kind of like the the things that are really important are are, are these practical things uh, like business and so on. And and when you look at anti elite rhetoric, right? What do people point at? It's like oh, these people, they waste 10 years doing like some PhD or, you know, they, they waste millions of dollars on some junk piece of art, uh, right? There are these kind of tropes that you see coming up again and again. But if we look at like ancient civilizations, right? The, the kind of, you know, the, the times we think of as like golden ages of the past, the things we're always looking at are their equivalents of that. Right, you look at the Great Pyramids, right? These places function as probably ritual elements, but also as tombs, but they're not productive, right? Or the ziggurats uh, in, in, in Babylon, Samaria, right? Again, ritually important, but not productive. Cathedrals in the Middle Ages, ritually important, socially important, not productive, right? At least not in and of themselves, even, even if like the, the communities that built them might be productive in some ways. Um, or, or just the, the, the pastimes like hunting or warfare, that that are you know most elites kind of have to engage in these are not productive in some immediate economic sense even if you know maybe you end up like securing political territory or fortunes or whatever through it um th these are actually the things that we look up to in other societies and the the most quote-unquote wasteful uh efforts made for things like pyramids we look back now and we see those as proof of a golden age of civilization. So it's very weird that we completely ignore in our own society uh, what our equivalents are. And maybe our equivalents aren't actually that interesting, right? Like maybe they're not that worth admiring. Maybe they should be better. But you could almost imagine like this weird Confucian ritualist critique of like our rituals, our wasteful expenditure is is not good enough it's like not worthy of what we should be doing which would be a very different kind of critique than just like oh this isn't productive oh this is like you know too leisurely or a waste of time uh it, it's a very different way of looking at what society or what is valuable in society right exactly everyone makes the critique from a liberal perspective that you know these things are actually wasteful and they're uh, that can be used better any ever somewhere else. No one comes and look, looks at these things and goes like, actually, this thing doesn't work because it's not wasteful enough, right? Uh, the, there's an economic calculus that 
Bataille notices, which is something along the lines of the more wasteful it is, the more meaningful it is. And this is an economy that we're talking about, right? Because we're talking about inputs and outputs in a lot of ways. And it's funny to notice this in places like religion. And this is a bit of a, of a side, but I'm training, um, I've, I'm collaborating and training um, a Christian artist on aesthetic theory. And this is, I'm training, and this is someone who's deeply, deeply faithful, and, and it's, faith is a big part of what informs her art. And when I made this connection that a lot of the things which are wasteful and destructive lie at the root of magic and religion, this was something which was very difficult and shocking for her. It was like a very difficult realization because art falls into that area. And it was like, art is also a kind of magic because you're engaged in this economy of destruction. As soon as you engage in this economy of destruction, you're engaged in magic immediately, by definition. And to her, that was very difficult to accept because it's like, well, I'm doing art too for religious reasons because of my faith. This is a way of, of glorifying what I need to glorify. Um, and then it's the realization that actually you might also be falling into something else. And that something else is not exactly clear. Yeah, it, it's kind of like um, even even some of these roles like religion or art that that traditionally operated like this, they they kind of become consumed by the productive mindset, right? So, like one example that occurs to me, the the sort of um, the new pride flag, not not like the old, just the rainbow one, but the new one, which sort of incorporated the trans flag colors and so on. Uh, sort of famously or infamously, the the artist who created that flag has actually, I think, copyrighted the work. And and you know, I mean, it's difficult to enforce, but he's the only one who can actually, uh, you know, a, a approve use. And his reasoning was explicitly, "Well, I'm an artist, and artists um, should be compensated for their work, and it's labor, and it's a job." And so, you know, he, he's applying the social script of a. A, a worker producing productive stuff to his career as an artist and you know uh, you know kind of from the outside uh, I, I'm not really making a judgment about that one way or another but it's interesting that uh, you know a lot of art even artists who were wealthy they were gaining that art through that wealth through patronage right through through this kind of sacrifice made by a, an aristocrat or a businessman or some other wealthy patron right there was this kind of idea that that art was supposed to be created through this sort of non-productive economy, one where you, you had a a person who wanted to use it, and the, the there was money being exchanged, but it was sort of less about the the laws of you know economic value and more about I, the patron, want to kind of receive social glory and esteem as being known as the patron behind this great artist, whereas this like this particular flag is a very important symbol in our society now uh but the the artist and the kind of structure producing it is operating according to the laws of just economic production like everything else and so you know may, maybe this is actually a good example of how the the sort of vast productive middle that we talked about earlier can actually consume an entire society right where even the top and the bottom these places that used to have autonomy from it even those places start to think in those terms um, so, so maybe that's actually a good jumping point into uh, the, uh, you know, what, what are these spaces that don't operate according to productive logic? Uh, yeah, so 
definitely and again we come back to this to this question which is like okay under a liberal regime are we not being wasteful enough right when we talk about people doing phds and so and so we typically talk about someone who's engaged in some kind of knowledge economy right we still think of it in, in terms of addition in terms of production of knowledge even in areas that let's say productive forces don't necessarily value but it's still like an increment of knowledge it isn't about like the dedication and the expenditure of a life in silent contemplation of a subject which has no use right um, these are very different categories of things and you've under the liberal regime that is impossible um, so areas where areas where that lo the logic of, of expenditure still exists um, well of course my article got into criminality um, criminality seems to still be a bastion of, of non-productivity so obviously the criminal underworld by definition it's not part of like the legal space of markets but despite that right people are are providing illegal services people are producing illegal products and selling them for money is it in fact like what 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 do we mean here when we say that the criminal world is not operating according to like you know the 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 sort of laws of productivity because it seems like there's still economic activity happening or are we talking about something like completely orthogonal to that like this is about the culture the norms the mindset of the underworld it's it's different to both of those options uh your i think your approach comes from a very rigid even anglo-saxon way of thinking right um if we go back to bataille we see that he talks about an economy of expenditure um and crime and the criminal on the world even if engaged in productive activity it is productive activity to guarantee um, most of the time, in fact, uh, waste, right? Well, you were in Rio, you were in Brazil. Uh, a lot of, and, and of course, in my piece, we talk about it. The people who dominate the criminal underground are drug dealers and traffickants. And we're, there's a whole production and there's a whole like physical productive economy related to the production of drugs. But the uses of drugs themselves are unproductive, right? So it is about guaranteeing the most, the greatest possible expenditure. It is about guaranteeing the greatest possible amount of waste. We're selling drugs for X, Y, Z, but the, the, the kind of markets that are operating here, they're not actually to do with um, the productive economy in a weird way. They're not. They're, they're, they're there specifically to guarantee expenditure. They're there specifically to guarantee total loss, right? And when you do drugs, you lose your mind. Like you, you stop, in fact, being productive. You stop being rational. So in a way, you, you step outside of the biological mechanisms, which is reason and uh, the psychological and biological mechanisms like reason and well-regulated uh, physical, your physical body into the realm of the dysfunctional. You take drugs to become, in fact, dysfunctional. That is an interesting realization from like a battalion reading, right? You are, in fact, engaged in biological, psychic and psychological expenditure. You become useless. That is, that is necessary. Um, and that's what the entire drug economy is based around, right? If you think about it, you, we, we have narco states. We have entire states in, in Mexico and in Brazil 
geared towards satisfying this impulse of becoming unproductive and wasteful? Something that, you know, I, you know, when I was in Rio, I was sort of meeting with people who uh, worked in various ways in the favelas, uh, in, 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 in the legal side of how they operate. But, uh, you know, something that comes up again and again is this question of who rules the favelas, right? And when, you know, as, as we sort of have discussed previously, when you cross into a favela, there, there you know, there's this weird territorial uh, thing going on where you're sort of stepping out of the, the legal formal world. You might even cross a kind of frontier because a number of these places have these sort of almost tourist sections of the favela, right? Where there's restaurants and, and things like that. And people can kind of get a taste of, of having saying, of saying that they've been there without enduring the risks of actual life in these places. But then you, you eventually move past that. You wander up into the hills. You get into the residential areas among the houses. And then people start looking at you funny. Uh, you know, you are definitely not supposed to be here. You're an outsider. If you wander far enough or if you wander into the wrong kind of place, eventually you'll have men with guns come up to you and kind of, you know, what the hell are you doing here? You know, and uh, if you're unlucky, maybe you get robbed or something. But you, you've left, you've left, you know, the world where law and legitimate power apply. And, you know, that gets you to this thing where the most successful people, the most successful people in the kind of legal world usually still don't have to entirely act as independent political agents, right? So, you know, maybe if you're Zuckerberg or if you're Bezos, you kind of have to act almost like a political power. But most people don't, right? People can have hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars and have successful companies. They don't have to worry about things like creating law or upholding justice, right? Or enforcing order or committing violence, right? About uh, punishing or killing people. But the people who are the most successful in the criminal underworld do have to worry about those things. They actually have to act as rulers, you know, and without the backing of legitimate power most of the time. So I think th this is an interesting scenario that we get into because on the one hand, as you're saying, this the logic applying in the criminal underworld has nothing to do with productive society. On the other hand, you know, we we start to get this convergence, not with productive society, but with like the, the highest levels, you know, beyond productive society, like political elites and state power and legitimacy and law and order, right? These things that, you know, on, on even in our legitimate space, we consider should not be subject just to the laws of economics, but should be protected from them. You and I went to Babylonia a couple of weeks ago, which is one of the favelas in Rio. We didn't, stray, we didn't stray too far, but I think it's a good story to tell. And a few observations, I think, for the audience would be good on your side. Sure. Just a very short trip. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, uh, just to give some context to listeners, Babylonia is a small favela near Copacabana near and, and Leme, uh, some of the famous beaches in Rio. Uh, it's small. It is one of these favelas where there is kind of a, a tourist front to the thing. Uh, and we sort of, I kind of alluded to it earlier, I guess, but we we ended up moving beyond the tourist area. We ended up wandering up into the hills uh, and and going into, you know, let's say the, the proper Babylonia. And it was an interesting place in a lot of ways, right? So let me let me point out one thing. 
women were walking around on their own, uh, you know, to work uh, where, wherever they were going. They were getting uh, these sort of taxi motorcycles that are very common in those places, which are very hilly. Um, but there was no concern that I could see in this particular favela. You know, they the, the sense seemed to be that they felt safe. We saw children playing uh, in, you know, playing football, playing soccer uh, in, in these little mounds. There was there was a sense of let, let's call it normalcy, normal community in this particular place. Um, when we wandered up into the into the hills, into the residential areas, though something interesting happened. Uh, we got spotted by, I believe it was a child to begin with, uh, and then as we wandered further in, a number of women who were sort of sitting outside a building started looking at us, uh, you know, kind of suspiciously. What are these guys doing here? I think they're speaking English. Why are their gringos this far into Babylonia? This doesn't make sense. And clearly some kind of community response got activated because uh, soon after that, we had someone start following us, right, trailing us well-dressed guy um presumably you know functioning uh, kind of community watch and uh he you know at that point we decided to make tracks you know message received and uh, we ended up wandering back down walked through leme and eventually left but we got we got uh trailed basically all the way until we left even through the tourist area until we left the favela altogether and i mean what that showed was there is you know a very organized system of government in Babylonia. And, you know, perhaps this is why it is considered a so-called safe favela, uh, tourist-friendly favela. It's because Babylonia is governed. It's not governed by the Federal Republic. When you walk into it, you see the last cars outside, and then there's one lone police station, I think, run by, like, one cop. You know, I think we saw a couple others just sort of doing a quick patrol but it is not really governed from outside. It's governed from inside. And the, I believe at the moment we discovered um, there's actually a conflict between the, the sort of old gang that used to run the place and some challengers. But despite that, it is governed. And, you know, I, I think that's the thing that stood out to me is like, uh, obviously, there are much more violent favelas in Brazil. Uh, even in Rio, there are places where the you know power is not really secure and where there's a lot of violence and where you'll get robbed quite easily uh, babylonia was not one of those um so that's kind of the thing that struck me uh about the place um sort of something i thought about a lot afterwards i talked about with people so i'll put that on the table uh, i don't know if it's quite what you were uh thinking of avi but uh why don't we see where that where that takes us yeah, uh, just a few extra. Exactly, you, you've described things exactly as they were. Uh, Babylonia was technically pacified 10 years ago. And I mean technically because now the only thing that remains of pacification operations is literally that one cop in that one outpost at pretty much the bottom of the hill. There's like two cop. We saw two cops doing a patrol on the exact same road we got chased out of. So as soon as the cops were out of sight, control reverted immediately back to, I guess, the people running in the neighborhood. Um, so this is this is the this is political power that is uh, that comes when you have vacuums of legitimacy, right? The Federal Republic of Brazil, I think, doesn't have the necessary mythos or legitimacy that comes with expenditure to enforce its will on these places, and you have these local, I guess, 
warlords, essentially, who, by virtue of being outside of productive society, are able to enforce, first of all, because they're engaged with something very unproductive, which is violence, right? And they're engaged in a kind of violence that is not being reciprocated by the federal republic because of the lack of legitimacy. And what I mean by that very practically, it's like, what is going to motivate um, an agent from the Polisa Militar to go and get shot in the favela, right? Like, why would these people ever get killed for, for, for the Federal Republic? What legitimacy does the Federal Republic of Brazil carry for these people to, to give up their lives for it, right? There's, there's conflicts between cops and, 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 and the gangs. But it's, it becomes very much like questions of personal vendetta, essentially. It's like, you killed my friend, therefore I'm going to go and absolutely erase your, your section of the city. And this is where Bopi and you have these special units. Um, these people are not engaged in a war to, to extend the legitimacy and the control of the Federal Republic. They're there to murder criminals because they killed their friends. That is essentially, essentially it's, it's essentially a war between two personalities. Right, so you get organizations like Bope, like this, the the sort of special police uh, that deals with the favelas and with the gangs. But also police militias. There are police militias who are engaged in the in the drug trade, actually themselves, who are using the drug trade to actually start murdering the the, the gangs themselves. Well, something that I was told was, you know, we're talking about the drug dealers here, but different favelas, the rulers end up uh, kind of having different bases of power. So in, in like Zona West, for example, uh, you, you get something more like protection rackets. You know, the, the basis of power is, is basically pure violence in a sense, uh, used to extract protection rents from, from businesses, from residents. And those places tend to be more violent because there there is not really a a high cost to having violence in those areas right it just kind of makes it more necessary to hire protection in the ones run by drug lords because there is this element of business functioning there seems to be a higher pressure to stabilize the area so uh, kind of like states right you you end up having to think in these very political terms uh, if you're you know a, a state where your whole legitimacy is based on continuing war with your neighbor you have no incentive to create peace. If you're a, a large and powerful state with a you know a lot of production, you do have that incentive. You basically won't be able to understand anything that's going on if you view these groups just as citizens of like a civil power, right? Even a failed civil power. You kind of have to view them as thinking in terms of of uh almost of sovereignty, right? And of uh how how can they keep the loyalty of their people, of their soldiers and of their residents? How can they mobilize them? How can they enforce law, right? Even if that law is like cutting the hands off a thief or something. Um, it's just almost archaic in some ways, right? This sort of cutting the hands of a thief we think of as something that is done in archaic societies, but it's also that something that sometimes happens in a place like Rosinha, right? In, in, in the more violent periods. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's... it's uh, it's a place where, where you end up thinking in this underworld in similar ways as you'd have to think if you were running the Federal Republic itself. Yeah, and I want to kind of hark back to the question that you asked. Maybe not go into Bataille per se, but come back to an yeah. observation. Um, 
so as you know, I spent some time around like Sao Paulo elites and Rio elites as well. They're kind of part yeah. of social circles I hang out with. And one of the things that always strikes me is how much, how much um, the local elites, the people who essentially own the country, are scared of going outside of their compounds. Even outside of their compounds. When, when I mentioned that I've been to places like uh, Babylonia or Rosinia, I mean, we went. It wasn't like super dangerous. It was just a regular stroll. We had a nice afternoon. Um, if we're careful, nothing happened to us. Something could have happened to us, but it didn't. But the reaction you get from Brazilian elites is that, oh no, we're going to get murdered. We cannot go there. We cannot go outside of our compounds or something really, really bad is about to happen to us. And to me, this is a sign of an elite. This is the sign of an elite which is just incapable of governing its own house or and is completely uninterested. Like, imagine if someone showed up in your house and told you that you couldn't use one of the bedrooms and you were like, oh, okay, all right, I guess I'm not going to go into that bedroom anymore, right? So, right. Uh, and this is, this is something which is important because you have these people with enormous amounts of power who essentially own the eighth largest economy in the world. And outside of their own context, they just represent nothing as people themselves. They themselves have no weight outside of the context that they exist in. And this is, this is the underlying idea of the article, which is like, okay, I'm someone who has shifted between different contexts, China, Brazil, um, favelas, friends in favelas, and also friends in the elite. And one thing which is important, which has always been important to me, is that you as a human being carried a certain weight about yourself. Right. You couldn't fake that you actually had power and that people were loyal to you. Like, you know, there is a high pressure. You, If you didn't have that, uh, someone was going to test you and you'd be found out. You'd be found out. But also what you yourself as a person, devoid of all the riches and all the power and all the influence that you have, who are you, right? This question is very important. It also, it's also a very religious question, if you think about it, going back to Bataille and magical thinking. You know, like the big question in, in St. Augustine's work is like, God, what am I to you? Who am I, right? What do I represent me, myself, devoid of all the riches and all the power and all the influence? Like if you took someone like Bezos and you put him in a favela, he is nothing, right? This person is nothing. This person is dead, right? Um, but if you put someone like Genghis Khan in a favela, not anymore. Yeah. With a few right? of his men. Yeah, exactly. With a few of his men or even alone. Someone, someone who knows how to fight, someone who understands the situation. Like even having the ear to be attentive to dangers. Like something as simple as like we spotted a motorcyclist who was, who was tailing us, right? Um, like not everyone would think to cut through the buildings and not go through the road, right? These are things which, which come with experience and living life on the frontier and just being situationally aware. And you develop that over um, by being exposed to dangers slowly and slowly and slowly until you build up a certain immunity. But if, if you are enormously powerful in the legal sense or in the mediatic sense, and suddenly you're thrown outside of your context and you're nothing, the reality is that you're actually nothing. And this is where the crisis of competence comes from, is you have people who are immediately taken out of the, of the place in the, in the machine. They're essentially, their cog has been removed out of the machine. And they're nothing because they're a cog. 
Right. Like a lot of the sen- the, the symbols of power or, or the symbols of legitimacy we have are, are signifiers, right? It's like the right kind of degree or the right kind of resume or, you know, th- things of that sort where like it sends a signal. Uh, it sends a signal about your your skill set or where you've come from or something like that. But, you know, it doesn't really change you as a person. Like you are still effectively the same person after your PhD. Maybe you've learned some stuff intellectually, but it, you know, it hasn't, you know, for most people, it hasn't kind of like fundamentally upgraded them into a different sort of person in a way that impacts their day-to-day life. Yeah, that's right. So in fact, the reason we have like this crisis of elites is you don't have elites. You have people who who are cogs in a machine, who op- who have privileged positions inside a machine, but they themselves represent nothing of actual value. They themselves have carry no weight. They themselves have skill sets which only function within the context that they ex- exist in. But as people, as human beings, devoid, uh, devoid of all the accoutrements of of influence and 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 the accoutrements of influence you represent nothing when you have a, when you look at older elites right in history these people when they entered the room any room you could put them in they were terrifying human beings they represented something anywhere they went right when people came across genghis khan or his descendants they saw them and they were terrifying um, even when you look at people who are not like these terrifying figures, um, one of the pieces in Palladium was the early Wasp elite, the early Protestant settlers of yeah. New England. Yeah, one of our other pieces, uh, just for the audience, one of our other pieces in Palladium 4, uh, that one was by Charles Coulomb. So you can check it out there on the website. Yeah, about about the early early foundation of New England. These people had a weight. They entered a room. They had a purpose. They spoke they essentially, and this is exactly what it is, they show up in a completely alien neighborhood, which is New England, with, with local tribes and natives, and they carry a weight by virtue of being who themselves, even though they're cut off from real imperial power, real physical power in the sense of like cannons and, and, and navies and things like that. They're not backed by that. They show up um, essentially with nothing in a new neighborhood, and they themselves get respected by virtue of who they are. So it, it brings up something that, um, I you know, we, we've discussed this a bit, but it's been this recurring theme that I think has been, like, it's something I've noticed more and more uh, since since I've started, like, trying to explicitly look for this stuff, is the, if you look at, you know, especially elite families, right, one where there's, like, a dynasty of, of power, influence, in the roots, you'll often find people who leave some other you know, society, some set of social norms or something, you know, some of them might just become pioneers, some of them become explorers, some of them become pirates, some of them become thieves. They're not necessarily going to the criminal underworld, but they are leaving their old society in like this very concrete way, often physically leaving it, often going to uh, the Americas, to Asia, wherever. And, you know, in some cases, like I'd say in the case of a lot of the the so-called princelings in China, even she himself, right? Uh, you look at their parents or grandparents, what did they do? Their society just fell apart. They didn't even need to leave it. And they ended up picking up guns to fight the Japanese, to fight the nationalists, whoever. But they left normal society and and ended up triumphing in a lot of ways. You know, what, what, in terms of the wasps, 
my favorite example is uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, right? Who was the very famous wasp. He was a railroad builder. He was considered a robber baron. His family is still influential, right? Anderson Cooper from CNN, his mother was a Vanderbilt. Very influential family. But if you look at their roots uh, back in the Netherlands, um, the five generations before uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt in the 19th century, their ancestor was a, a, a convert to Islam, a Moroccan pirate, and he governed like a city-state in, in North Africa, the Republic of Saleh. And even, uh, you know, so his name was Jan Jansun. He raided as far away as Iceland. Like, this guy's basically a real pirate lord, and he's the ancestor of one of America's most influential boss families. And these stories are more common than you think. And, you know, maybe that brings us a little to this, the interplay between this frontier, this underworld, and, and the way that elites get made. Like, you know, we, we can obviously find a lot of historical examples, but I'd actually like to speak about this more in a personal context. You know, we, we do a lot of work on declining elite institutions. We've talked about some of them in Palladium 4. But I don't think that the takeaway here is like, oh, how do you reform institutions? The takeaway for a lot of people is where do you go? So, uh, you know, maybe I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear some of your thoughts on this topic. You've done it yourself. But what should someone do when they find themselves in this, like, very dysfunctional society where there is not actually, there's less and less reason to even engage just the productive mode of life because it does not give you the results anymore? Uh, that's, a, that's a very good question. And I don't think it's a question that I'm able to fully answer. I've done this in a much more composite way, in a much more complex way than 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 like a cut and dry. I became a pirate, right? Um, I went I went away looking for productivity. Uh, I went away looking for a productive society in a lot of ways, and I'm kind of plugged into the economy, right? I'm I'm a I'm a I'm someone who works in technology, so I'm not exactly someone who's exited productive society. Uh, but I mean, that, that, this was also the case for, let's say, the early Portuguese when they were trying to get to China, right? Or India. Um, they were out there looking for, for uh, riches and connection. Um, I think it's the process of exiting which is actually much more important. Um, because first of all, as soon as you go from somewhere to somewhere, um, there's a road you have to go through and the road you have to walk sometimes doesn't lead you to where you think it is it is actually going to take you um and suddenly you start seeing dangers and you start seeing complications and you start what the thing which you start enjoying is being able to not conform to the rules that you were forced to follow before. Um, we really underestimate how how restrained we are in our own lives, you know, um, how restrained we are in day-to-day -day life, how, how crushing the life of like a young working class guy is or how difficult and uninteresting and how boring and unlivable middle-class existence is. You know, it is. It definitely is. You, it's a numbing existence. And as soon as you you kind of break away from this, what happens is you're immediately exposed to violence, and violence not in the sense that you're going to get robbed or hurt or beaten or 
or murdered, not known. It doesn't come in that form. All the all the assurances that you had are suddenly removed from under you. All the crutches that you could rely on, um, and but also all the bars in your cage are suddenly removed, and you're cast out into this wilderness. And even if you're going from productive society to productive society, the road that you have to cross with nothing is is the real temperance. It is where you learn to become a person of worth, a person of skill. It's where you sharpen your ability to understand the world, right? Um, to me, to me, this, as you can probably tell, this is a very philosophical exercise. To me, there's a deep, deep philosophical attachment. The idea of leaving is in itself a philosophical experience. It is a way of leading a life that is worth living. Um, so it's not just about going from a semi-comfortable place to a more comfortable place or even just finding my place in the world. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the physical, uh, in, the, in the philosophical reflections and the wisdom that comes with being cast out of, 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 of comfort and having to find it again in a way which is actually authentic. I think that um, there's something there. Like... At Palladium, obviously, uh, both both in this magazine and in general, we talk a lot about elites. And I think that there there's a, a way where you can get caught up in the trappings and, and even the prestige of the past, right? I, I see this a lot as a kind of nostalgia. Um, it's a nostalgia for the, you know, what people see as golden ages or high periods in society. And, and people who become alienated from what's around them, they, there's this escapism that develops, right? Where it's just like... You know, if only we did this or that program, we could just bring back the the golden age of the past or whatever it is. But that's not actually, I mean, that's not useful, right? That does nothing to change you. And if we look at the roots of great societies, right, they don't start with people with some explicit grand plan, right? You look at, let's, you know, let's, let's take Rome or, or, or let's take the British Empire, the Portuguese Empire, Whatever it is, right? Uh, I'm sure you know the the Aztec Empire, the Inca Empire. They don't start with people with some kind of grand plan about how they're going to create a certain kind of society, right? Like in in fact, that way of like very formalistic theoretical thinking might even be antithetical to the whole thing. They generally start with people who have very personal motivations, very personal ambitions. Um, Maybe it is something like the thirst for glory or, or wealth or whatever it is. Uh, sometimes there are like even religious motivations, right? You look at the the Jesuits or the Franciscans in Asia and the Americas. These are religious motivations. And yet they ended up creating like entire societies. But as individuals, people did not go with these kinds of like long aims in mind. They're going for opportunity and they're going for these very contingent reasons and it happens to be that some of these things end up being so powerful or the, the things that they create are so powerful, they do create entire societies. But for us as people, I, I think it sort of speaks to we should not be like we, we shouldn't be looking for answers in ideology in this sense that like you're not going to create some grand plan that you'll perfectly implement in the world instead and, uh, you know, we, we even talk about this a bit in, in Wolf's piece, for example, in, in this magazine. You, you kind of have to convince yourself of a very personal vision, something you're willing to sacrifice yourself for, your individual self. Uh, 
even if it doesn't make sense to anyone else. And it's the people who get in that mindset, and you know, most of them fail, right? Most of them end up in that graveyard you saw in Macau. But you know, sometimes they succeed, and and if you're kind of uh, you're you're correct enough, you're willing to evolve and update and change enough in pursuing what you're pursuing. Sometimes you do end up playing this important role, right? Creating something that actually changes all of society. But you don't get to that point through this kind of like overcoded theorizing about the world. You get to that point by throwing yourself into the world and being able to sort of, you know, swim with it, being being able to spot what no one else is seeing and chasing after that thing. Right. Uh, there's this kind of it's 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 a different psychology from the sort of, you know, the theory person, the intellectual, something like this. I don't quite know how you categorize that that psychology, actually. Maybe it's not even a single psychology, but, you know, it, it sounds like what what you're kind of pointing to Avi and, and through the people you're being inspired by. What's more important is to actually throw yourself out and, and be able to develop yourself in that direction than than having some set of ideas or something like that yeah in some sense i believe that the crisis that we have on our hands which is kind of a global crisis in a lot of ways um is not a crisis of institutions right if you look at different countries around the world with radically different institutions you see a lot of the same problems popping up you know i talk to people who are in singapore institutions um, I talk to people who are in Indian institutions, and Chinese institutions, and Japanese institutions, and Brazilian institutions, and Mexican institutions, and the same problems seem to pop up. The cost of sheltering oneself when you're in a position of responsibility has become too low. Right? Um, comfort, comfort is too readily available to those who can afford it, essentially. And it's, first of all, too readily available and too much comfort at the same time. There's no cost to maintaining it. And you, these are the people who run the institutions which have worked so well in the past, right? We look at institutions which have shined across the world and the same institutions operating in a similar fashion are just completely incapable of functioning. Why? It's the people, right? And it's the same thing with democracy. You know, a lot of ideas have circulated um, in, in some of the political theory circles in the last 10, 15 years, which essentially were crit critiques of, of, of democracy, right? They were like, democracy is not, does not work. We need an authoritarian option. And what that misses is that uh, democracy was possible when people had the levels and virtues and commitments um, that people in, who built these democracies had in the past, right? There, there's all these base assumptions that go into we, we can all have voice in a society because whom? we have created a yeah but like we've also created I mean we being here you know the people establishing these things you know I, I let's like look at Brazil right <clears throat> um, here eventually a republican regime gets established but it's very much a republic of certain families the same way that America was with the wasps and I think that. You know, we, we tend to look at a republic as a form of government in terms of the formal state, but you can also look at a republican regime as a kind of political culture for an elite, right? One where it's not so much based on like the personal power of a family or individual. Instead, you have this kind of like corporative identity of the state and you have this idea of officers of the state and of public service and of the law and so on. 
it's a different set of norms from the feudal one or the medieval one, but it is a way that an elite governs itself. It is a kind of regime that gets established, but it also assumes that the kind of priors and culture and psychology already exist such that it can maintain that kind of regime. And I, I think we effectively never talk about this. We talk a lot about, you know, when did X, Y, Z, you know, when did China, when did America, when did the Soviet Union, whatever, get established? We talk very little about what sorts of people established them and where they came from and how they evolved, right? How their psychologies functioned, what their experiences were. And those things seem yeah, very exactly. important. Exactly. The Renaissance is Florence and Florence is a republic, but it's a republic of Florentines. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and you have all these amazing characters living in this, this like what, what is essentially a small town by today's standards. Right. Um, just and that's exactly it. It's the quality of, of the people. And that's that's my main concern. And I think. The way I would word this project, I don't like this wording because it sounds extremely pompous on my end. Um, but it's not its not because I have these aspirations for myself. I just have these aspirations. For me, my aspirations are purely philosophical. Um, um, but I think this is a good exercise in, in something more, which is like, um, how do you produce princes, right? It's the question I'm, I've been trying to answer for such a long time in one way or another, which is like, um, what do princes need to know in the 21st century, the 22nd century, or the 23rd century? How do you make princes, right? We don't have princes anymore. It's a, it's a hard question to answer because it's, um, first of all, the spaces where these are possible are getting sh smaller and smaller, right? Um, and the stock of people who, are, who can become potential princes is, is shrinking, actually. In a world where, where the global population is increasing, <laughs> the potential for producing princes is getting smaller and smaller. Like you don't just think it's shrinking in like proportional terms. You think it's shrinking in absolute terms. In absolute terms. Hmm. Um, That's an interesting thesis. And, and, and I'm thinking like, where do people, what do people have to do to become princes? And what, what does, what does it mean to become a prince? Right. How do you produce princes? Um, it's been a fun exercise to go around the world and try to see these things and try these things and practice virtues in places where virtue is very difficult to practice, right? Um, and and that, that's been a conversation I've had with several people, which, which has been a conversation which is actually very interesting, which is, okay, you practice virtue in your middle-class existence, um, you love your wife, you're faithful to everything that you believe in. Uh, what if we take you and put you in a place where practicing that becomes extremely harder? How much do you actually care about the things that you pretend you care about? Um, and, and, and then you realize that actually, you know, the cost for, for the beliefs that you have is extremely high. And not only that, the fact that, that you're going to have to compromise on your beliefs is something which is very difficult for a lot of people who lead very sheltered lives. It's like regardless of how much you think these things are true, you're going to be tainted and compromised by, by the world around you. And you have to make peace with that and you have to understand that. And I think that should be part of like princely thinking. In a lot of ways, like Machiavelli hints at this in, in a lot of his writing, but um, just just you don't have to be a prince to, to realize this. Is as soon as you put yourself out there in the wilderness, you will be tainted and compromised by the wilderness you're going through. And the big challenge then becomes, it's like, okay, what is it that, 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 that I have to do in order to go through this? 
with a minimum of dignity. It's interesting just how different you can see cultures in the West being even in the 17th and 18th centuries, right? As late as that. Like I, uh, I, you know, I, I've read a bit about the, the, the old Jesuit order in like the 1600s. You have the Franciscans at the same time and you, uh, these, these orders are being run or being staffed a lot of the time by the children of aristocrats. And you have, you know, the, the sort of numbers you now have for a place like Harvard or Yale, you have for the Jesuit order, you have thousands, tens of thousands of young men over the years, like competing with each other for the opportunity to never marry, to be a lifelong celibate, and to be thrown onto like, you know, the ends of the earth, right? Macau or Peru or, or Africa somewhere, uh, and probably die from a horrific disease and young men are you know piling over each other for the opportunity to see these places and to live this life and to leave home forever effectively right you you just imagine the kind of mindset i mean even if you don't end up taking that path yourself right uh like say you're the eldest son you actually do just kind of go through the you know so to speak like the curses honorum and and kind of live the life that expected of you even for those people, like what a different society to live in. Uh, it's, it's probably uh, difficult for us to imagine. Yeah, but again, not so much. Right? Uh, and this was, this was the realization that I was talking about in the cemetery in Macau. Um, it's like uh, this John Hopkins um, chap, 20-something-year-old. It's probably a guy very much like me with the same fears and desires and um, platitudes and he probably loved his mother very much like I do and he had a family, he had a sister, he had friends, he probably liked drinking, he probably liked gambling like I do, right? These things are like, yeah, these people are so different from us, but they're not. Uh, we're just not, we're just, we're just not worthy of the title of a, uh, that we accord to ourselves sometimes, which is the title of a person. And this thesis, I think, is, is probably, to me, the, one of my most controversial opinions that I get a lot of pushback on, but I think is, is an important one to bring up, which is like um, the whole point of leaving the comforts of society and the comforts of your existence is not for you to become an elite. It's not for you to learn how to lead and, and command men and build great things. No, you're not even at that level yet. You have to do the first thing, which is the most important thing, which is to become a human being first. You, you must enfranchise yourself as a person. And that's what the act of, of, of self-exile from the comforts of life are, um, from, from, uh, from certainty, because it's not just comforts. Comforts are not the problem here. It's from the certainty of your existence, of the mundanity of liberalism. Right. You of, kind of, of have to become aware. Systems you kind of have to become aware of just how contingent uh, life is, how much probability of failure or of dying, let's say, there, there is in the whole thing. Or, or even live the kind of life where that is true. Yeah, you, or the life which, which, which is life. That is, that is the reality of, of human existence. You have to come across and face it and be like, okay, this is what it means to be a person. You know, this is what it means. You cannot extend kindness unless you are surrounded by the cruelty of the world, right? Your kindness is meaningless outside of that, right? Your virtue is meaningless. Your courage is meaningless. Your courage only has meaning when it is against something, when there is an actual threat to you. 
um, you only become a person, you only understand the limits of your own existence, you know? Sometimes you learn humility out of it. Humility is a very human feeling. Courage is also a very human feeling, so is fear. But you need to come across, you need to be put in a place where things are real. This is real human existence. This is the real human experience. And only then, once you've done away with all the artifacts, which, which are essentially poisons and lies in, 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 in a lot of ways, only then will you understand what it means to be a person. And before you can become a prince and rule people and command and build great monuments and conquer the world, you need to become a human being. And essentially, that's what, what, what the idea of living is all about. Um, we are governed by people who are not people. Our elites today are not human beings. They are these manifestations of these institutions and anxieties. These are like collective poisons. And governed by egregores. Governed by egregores. This is exactly the sentence which I think that a lot of people gloss over. Some people notice it in the article, which is like people emerge with moral handicaps. This is what I mean. These people, a lot of our elites don't have the moral stock required to be a person, lest even govern people, right? And the purpose of, of, of going out to the frontier is for you to become a human being. Um, and even when we talk about pleasures, right? We talk about a society of softness and pleasure. It's not true. I don't believe that. People don't even understand pleasure. They have a simulation of pleasure, which they understand. And I, I'm like, and the way I, I word this, I think I've shared this expression with you. Um, we, we as a society don't have, don't experience animal pleasures. We experience some kind of fungal need to relieve certain pressures, right? Right, so for example, if, if and a great example of this, for example, if, if you're in good company and you come across this very beautiful woman and you talk to her and you're moved by her and you have this animal passion for her and you're just overcome by passion. And then you do something in order to, uh, in accordance to your passions, you're moved by your passion. This is, this is what it means to be human, right? And sometimes you could be married, for example, this is, this is essentially an error. This is um, a lack of virtue in some ways, right? But this is a human passion. This is an animal passion, even if you want to use the term. But for example, the mass... Um, the mass exposition of pornography on an industrial scale, this is fungal behavior. You're not a human being in this sense, right? In a lot of ways, this is not human behavior. This is not passion in the sense that we understand it. These aren't passions. These are uh, fungal impulses of chemicals moving around. It's so, hydraulic pleasure. You know, you're just- It's hydraulic pleasures. Yeah, so even the fact that you can't even be, you can't even lack in virtue is, is a problem for me that you can't even lack in virtue because you're just responding to some kind of chemical need because that's what you've been conditioned to be to do as a good middle class boy. What do you do as a good middle class boy? You you go and watch pornography, right? Um, that that is that is your existence. You 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 exist not at the level of an animal, not even at the level of a human being. You exist at this base semi fungal, you, you uh, know, primitive was this organism. There was this theory about, you know, uh, back in the day, they talk about limbo, which was kind of the place that maybe, you know, the righteous pagans or unbaptized infants or, you know, basically souls that had not really committed evil but hadn't attained salvation would go. And one of the theories was that, like, th this is basically a place where you, uh, you kind of, your soul just sort of almost dissolves. You know, it's not that you die, but you basically, your, your unrealized human elements just kind of fade away and you become 
almost like a, you know a failed vegetative sub form of a soul and and in this in this description it sounds like we've kind of manifested that on earth already this nightmarish scenario you mentioned that you see a lot of this you know in different countries on different continents like it seems to be global in some way this this kind of um this fading away of contingency and of like these basic human virtues why do you do you have a theory on why this is like why why should it be that the whole world enters this together instead of just you know one society uh yes because we all are living in the modern world this is what it means to be modern <laughs> you know um there's a there's this wonderful sentence by a french writer named Roger Nimier and um, he has a book about um, the occupation of the Rhineland by the French uh, at the end of the Second World War. We have someone who's, who's contemptful almost of war. It's become a joke to him, this industrialized mass, uh, mass extermination of souls. And he's just taking pleasure in it. This is because it's the third iteration of the Franco-Prussian War. You know, His grandfather's fought it, his father fought it, now he's fighting it. And to, to him, like, it's become a joke. And he has this wonderful, wonderful <laughs> sentence, which kind of encapsulates this. He says, um, I hate the modern world, but I love its skinny women and their beautiful legs. And he was writing at a time where, where those pleasures were still, still permitted. Uh, mm. um, well, yeah, and, sex and is illegal what, now, so... It is, in fact. Um, but the yeah, the point the point being here is that this is just the modern world. It is it is mechanization. It is the logic of the of the industrial world. This is the cost we pay for 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 the industrial world. Now, I'm I you know me. I, I'm I'm I've been a Palladium, uh, a friend of Palladium for a long time, and I've been friend friends with the people who've made Palladium. And a big part of what Palladium is is about industry and industrialization, right? Um, the question which we still have to master is how do we remain or become human while living in an industrial world or in a post-industrial world? Um, so something as simple as education. You know, we were talking about what it means to educate elites. If you think about it, what is a GPA? A GPA is, is a standard of quality, right? It's almost like a production line. You put pre people through primary school, that is the first treatment that they receive. It is the first industrial process. And then you put them to a high school, which is the second industrial process. If they meet a certain quality standard, then they can go to the third. It's like it's like a it's almost like a production line. And a GPA is really just uh, a standard of quality. It's an evaluation metric. It's literally a number. And and diplomas are just cer certificates of quality. Right. The industrial logic kind of takes us over, uh, or at least like a deformed version of it. Like I, I do want to say here, you know. You're you're right. Like this industrial civilization question is one that that we've always focused on, and I, I, you know a, a sort of bold claim that we make uh, that I think is, you know, I think it's true. Uh, maybe it even has to be true because I don't think the industrial civilization is going anywhere per se. They, like there's no other apex predator, so to speak, that that seems able to displace it, but. We, you know, we, we kind of assume that these weird, deformed versions that seem to, like they, they just consume human life, that this is the real industrial logic. And, you know, that's one thesis, but 
you have someone like Taichi Ono, who you know founded the Toyota production system, and he always made the claim that actually, you know, th- this this is proof of a degenerated industrial logic, one where people have become comfortable with it and aren't changing it, right? And so he he, he pointed to. The, you know the way that Henry Ford's original system, which is you know scale production uh, and and large lots uh, and large production lines with specialized tasks, um, you know he, he kind of pointed to you know when Ford was starting that was what made sense at the time, but then people got lazy with it. People ended up uh, just just trying to kind of make it bigger and bigger, and they didn't ask the question: Is this serving the people? Who are doing the work, and Ono rejected it, and he updated it, and he, you know, a big focus of his was uh, people on the line doing different tasks, right? Not just being these cogs in the machine, but actually mastering aspects of the production line. And you know, and 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 again, it would be false to say that we just need to go back to whatever his system was. The the kind of more fundamental point he's making is that. If we had uh, a sort of human industrial society, right, one where the the kind of like the virtue of our species and the power of industrial society, where those were unified, you'd have an industrial system, even a material industrial system that was very living, that updated all the time, right, that kind of had feedback and change and and you know we, looks almost more like an ecology than this sort of static factory logic or whatever we want to call it um so yeah i i kind of just want to you know i think it's been a while since we've discussed this on a podcast um palladium 2 did cover this more in depth but in the context of our discussion i kind of want to bring up that claim um you know this discussion is more about the human virtue side of the whole thing but you know, if if that kind of feedback loop does exist, then it it affects everything ultimately. Yeah, and that is that is the big question of our time. And I wrote I, I wrote a piece in twenty nineteen, the Canada piece, Canada, and, and you guys know um, I grew up in a factory. Uh, my grandfather worked the production line. My father was an engineer, and I think a lot of the reasons, a lot of the circumstances that created. The reasons for me to leave and go to Asia was just because the factories were gutted. Uh, the stability that the industrial world provided had just been yanked from me. It's not because you know I decided to enfranchise myself from from working class or middle class life and decide to go out in the wilderness. It's because the the wilderness just came to us. So my point back to the industrial thing is that this isn't a railing against the modern world, right? Uh, this isn't old men, you know, like, uh, uh, this is an eludite narrative that I want to bring up. Industry has an important role to play. And it, there's a virtue that comes with industry. Industry exists in order to guarantee human dignity. There is no human dignity without industry. Right. Industrial virtue is an interesting concept there. It's probably worth digging into at yes. some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you see this uh, a lot in 17th century texts around the culvertism. Um, where they're like, the logic of production can guarantee uh, dignity to the poor. And it does, right? It stops them from starving. It stops human conflict in a lot of ways. Like the prosperity we have is not necessarily evil in and of itself. What we haven't learned to do, and which is the tasks of the princes that must come in in the centuries uh, ahead, 
um, the, these, the tasks of the princes and the leaders and just even just philosophers of the future, the task that they have to tackle is how do, you, how do we lead a dignified life in an industrial society? And the thing we have to understand is that industrial society is only 200 years old. This thing is extremely new. This is something which the human species is not accustomed to. We are not naturally used to it. We are, um, we, this is something which is alien to our existence. And the fact that we haven't mastered it yet should not be cause for concern. It's normal. Um, we, we have time to learn and understand how to, how, how, how to become human beings again in an industrial society. Um, I, I like this idea of, of, of enfranchising ourselves. I think this is the word to look for, you know, um, the, the concept, the way we should think about our relationship to, um, to the industrial and the, 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 of industrial and technological totality is that we can enfranchise ourselves from the fungal life which is forced upon us and which we are born and molded by, right? There's, 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 there's an option to leave. And these, the, these desires to, to get out are just really that. They're the human being desiring to live. It's, it's grasp for freedom. And these are, these are healthy impulses. They're not necessarily correct, right? Um, a lot of people are going to fail in these, in these attempts, myself included, could very well fail. And uh, I make no claim as to the insights that I've gathered that are amazing or original in, in any significant way. Uh, these are probably things you can read in books anyways, uh, good books that is. But, um, but I think the impulse is a healthy one and it's something that I encourage a lot of people to do. Um, but especially our, our brightest, you know, the, pe the kids who get forced into, into these classes and who conceptualize of, of life as just being another white collar cog, uh, for status, um, is debilitating. It's the people who inflict this are morally compromised by, 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 by the promotion of this to begin with, but also we, we should be, we should be encouraging creating structures and creating incentive for, for people to leave. Mm -hmm. So th this kind of, uh, you know, we, we've been going a while here. I think, uh, we're kind of in the last few minutes, but something I want to touch on uh, before we finish is this strange way where you have collaboration and even overlap between what we think of as the legitimate and the criminal worlds. And maybe a good way to do that would be to talk about Rene L'Elegant, Rene the Elegant. Um, for those who have not read the piece, Avi, maybe give a quick explanation as to who he is. But I, my question to you then is, uh, what fascinates you about this person, you know, and and why why is he such a central figure in this piece? You know, why why was that the decision you made as you were writing? Uh, that's that's a great question, and it really addresses a lot of the a lot of the discussion we've had. This discussion at a very like high level, almost philosophical level, mm -hmm. but uh, the the Legon yeah, let's embody is, him, embody this a bit. He, he, the reason Lelegant is so important in my piece is that he's a failure, right? Um, 
he embodies the failure of 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 taking this risk. Uh, just give a little of his backstory yeah. first, maybe. A backstory, uh, yeah. The backstory yeah. is very interesting. This is someone who gets engaged in the French monarchist right very early, very early on. His father is a is a is a Italian marquis who fights um, in the First World War as a war hero, but lives in Paris. And he he's the child of this kind of illegal liaison between a lyric singer and uh, 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 an Italian marquis, right? So he 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 grows up with his mother in on the Champs Elysees. His mother is a lyric singer. They have regular guests at their homes, like Jean Marais, famous actor, and so on. So he's very much involved in Paris cultural life from a very young age. And this is someone with impeccable taste, um, someone with royalist commitments. So he wants to embody elegance that comes with being a royalist. Um, and over time, he becomes engaged in different movements. For example, he, uh, out of idleness, really, he goes into... Uh, into the, he joins the French army, he does his training, <clears throat> but he's too old for Algeria. Algeria is over, you know. Uh, he has not the option to fight in Algeria. So he's just on base the entire time doing exercises in the Alps. And he kind of gets bored of it. This is an army which has been defeated and has nothing to do. And he kind of gets bored of it. He does the exercises. He's a decent soldier, not a great one, but a decent one. So he decides to go fight in Lebanon in the Lebanese Civil War to assist the phalangists against um, the PLO and so on and, and the whole difficulty of the Lebanese Civil War. And um, he spends time in, in France. Uh, he spends a lot of time around prostitutes, also an interesting thing to note. Um, a lot of his friends noted that he preferred the company of dancers and prostitutes to respectable women. And he's tasked by French intelligence to assassinate um, two communist uh, leaders or figures that the French judiciary is just unable to commit. Right. So, so that that's a key element here, right? I, I want to highlight it. There's this collaboration between the state and the illegal, the criminal sphere for political ends, and this happens. I mean, you know, this this. This happens all the time. I think, especially in the Anglo sphere, we generally frame it in terms of corruption uh, or something of that sort. Like this is an abnormal working, and it's true in a sense because obviously the law is meant to persecute the unlawful, right? Like, like let's be clear here: it is persecution is a driving out. Law is meant to expel unlawfulness, and yet obviously in practice you can never fully expel it. And in these extreme scenarios, they can even get pushed together. In World War II, uh, New York used mafiosis to gather information along the New York dock system. Th these things happen again and again. And in, in a sociological sense, right, in a sense of talking about society as it works, this collaboration is a fact of political life that has to be confronted. It can become extreme. In Mexico, for example, I think it's arguably become extreme. Um, people lost control of the whole thing. But uh, a, a society where you had none of it probably would cease to function, might even become worse, might become more violent, because there is no way for the lawful political sphere to negotiate, deal with, engage the criminal sphere. Um, yeah, this is someone who's very comfortable in around French milieu, the French mafia. Um, yeah, sorry, someone who's very comfortable with the French Mafia. Uh, he's, he's someone who's engaged in scams. 
He makes a lot of his money quite illegally. He's a mercenary for cash. Uh, so someone who's definitely in the in the illegal sphere and engaged in active criminal activity at the same time. Um, but René is a good example of like embodying both high French culture because of his background and even his stock. He's someone who's the son of an aristocrat, but also someone who represents criminality, murder, and also the usefulness of criminality um, to the French state, right? To, to, to political power. But the reason I really like the René example is René is a failure. Um, he is the failure of the lifestyle that I described. And I want to use him specifically for that because people need to understand that um, if you leave the cage, if you drop the crutches, if you leave middle class life, there's no guarantee you're going you're gonna to have or create a sense of dignity for yourself. There may very well be a, be a, be a situation where actually you're um, a fraud, um, you're full of lies and... Um, the life, the adventurous life that you described is actually just an illusion. In a lot of ways, that's the case with René. You know, he's someone who goes to Lebanon to fight for the Christians as a committed monarchist. He's getting paid, obviously, but he's definitely committed to the cause. He goes there and he says he's, he, it's a religious country, so there are no really no women he can access. He can't really go chill at the pool, which he wanted to in, 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 in Beirut. So really, he spends a total of one and a half months fighting in, in, in Lebanon. That is the totality of his engagement on the Christian cause as a monarchist. And then it's a, it's a story that he keeps telling for the next 20 years. You know, I fought for, for the Lebanese on, in, in the Lebanese Civil War. It's an inflated story. It's true. He, he actually does some pretty serious fighting in the month and a half that he's there, but it's still a month and a half commitment. And he just wants to leave as soon, pretty much as soon as he gets there. Um, and same thing goes with... Um, uh, with uh, his engagement in um, in with Bob Denard. He's engaged and fights as a mercenary in the coup in Benin. And he, he kind of behaves pretty va valiantly during the coup itself. It's a failed coup, of course, so it's a failure once again. And But the, but the thing which is notable is that Bob Denard um, is an actual career mercenary. It's someone who fails in the end, kind of, but he has a real serious 30-year career as a mercenary. This is something that he does for most of his life. Um, and then you have someone like René who interacts with him in a very derogatory way. René refuses orders. He's, kinda, he, he's constantly confronting Bob Denard, constantly making fun of him, disagreeing with orders. Um, so you have someone who's a serious character in, in, in this kind of... Um, in this outlaw existence, and you have someone like René who's kind of a poser, you know? And the way he dies is actually quite notable for someone who's murdered, done scams, and been in a criminal underground. In the end of his life, he has no savings. He has no status. He's unmarried. Um, he relies on the charity of his friends, and he lives with them, and he dies choking on a piece of meat at the age of 70, completely, you know, with the life that's been completely wasted. And I like... And humiliating death to, uh, to an overinflated life in some ways. And I like the example because this is also what I mean when, it mean when I say we want to confront real life. Mediocrity is a very real possibility that not a lot of people consider. Maybe you go out, maybe you do these things, but maybe you're just mediocre. You know? Maybe you're afraid, maybe you don't, you're not committed enough, maybe you're not serious enough. Yeah, people think that as soon as they leave and they take these risks, that suddenly they're going to they're gonna achieve their, their goals and they're going to become this great person. 
But that's not how it works. That's not what it means to confront um, the human experience. You will be compromised, and everyone is compromised as soon as you leave um, the confines of respectable society. Um, and that's the case for René as well. René is a very fascinating character. Uh, he's worthy of a book. He's probably worthy of a movie. But he's still a mediocre character. Um, but that's okay. You know, that's the message in, a lot, in, in all of this is that it's, it's, it's in some ways part of the human experience to be mediocre. Um, even, even outside of the confines of, of middle-class safety. Right? It's okay to come to that realization maybe later in life. And it's still a life well lived. It's still, you're still a human being. You know, you've become a human being, even a mediocre one. But you've become a human being. And that in itself is respectable. I guess that's probably an important point, actually. You know, this, this early distinction you made between the virtues of a human being and the virtues of, you know, a very heroic person or a prince or whatever. Um, if we live in a society where, you know, most people don't even have the virtues of human beings... There, there's like a certain victory in just managing that in a way that might not be true in a healthier society where those virtues are widespread. Exactly, exactly. Hmm. And that is that that is what is to be done, my friends. Uh, uh, right. That is what is to yeah. be done. You, you, to become, yeah, you, you sort of end with a, 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 a call to something. Uh, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about this Um there's, I mean, you know, there's a lot of topics we could cover here. You know, as you say, you you still do operate, obviously, in the business world. Um, you know, there's not many spaces for people to become pioneers or conquistadors or whatever uh, these days. There's probably some. There's probably more than people expect. But um, for a lot of people, the the act of building something very normal, like a business, in a completely unfamiliar place, uh, is itself a challenge. Um, so, you know, there, there's not sort of like one prescription here on what people should do, uh, if they, if they feel that sense of overcoding of alienation, um, if they, you know, want to escape the, the resume stack and, and try something new, you know, like making that judgment is probably the first challenge in a way, right. Um, or figuring out who to follow, who to copy, who to take inspiration from. That judgment is 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 the first challenge, um, but you know it's 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 one a lot of people can undertake. Uh, even you know, as you say, uh, you don't really know where you'll end up. So yeah, I I think that you know for a lot of the feedback I heard about this piece, uh, it seems like a lot of people read it. You know, maybe maybe are in that mindset or considering, are considering you know whether whether whatever their life currently is, is worth continuing in the way that they have been. I guess we'll see uh, just how much impact it has downstream. Uh, you know, but perhaps some people will take inspiration from this and, and do something incredible. Um, I'd love to see that happen. Uh, I certainly encourage anyone listening who who's in that mindset to, to take the risk, uh, even if the, the chance of failure is high. Um, the important thing is probably to have confidence that you think what you're doing is probably correct and have enough humility to update what you're doing uh, when you find that you're doing some stuff wrong. So that that's the sort of, uh, I'll, I'll sort of leave that as, as a note of inspiration. As I said, you know, we, we've kind of opened a lot of topics here. I expect that this 
theme is going to be one uh, underlying a lot of future pieces. I definitely hope that it is. Uh, I also want to give some encouragement to people who, you know, maybe they listen to this and they're already on some interesting frontier uh, or, you know, they've they're, they've ended up somewhere that's quite unusual. Um, we'd love to hear from you. You know, if you have a story to tell, uh, be it on a podcast or in writing, we'd love to be the place where you tell it. Um, so I kind of want to extend that very wide invitation. Uh, part of why we do long form here is because we want to hear the stories that people have. Uh, you know, there, there are all these places in the world. There's a wide world outside of the confines of, you know, of American life, even of elite American life and of Western life. Uh, and more people than I think we expect do in fact seek those out and end up in them. And I think that being able to hear those stories is important because people, it does, I think, let you realize that your form of life is quite contingent. And maybe that's threatening in some ways because your way of life could disappear. But I think that under the right circumstances, it can also be a pretty hopeful thing. Because if you, in fact, have lost faith in what you're doing, there's, there's, there's other ways of living there's other places there's other possibilities so maybe we can end on that optimistic note um avi i want to say thank you again for coming on uh this is a super interesting discussion definitely i think this is one of my favorite pieces in palladium 4 i'm excited in seeing uh where else we take this this line of thinking um and you know uh we're wrapping up here in Brazil. Uh, I think our conversations were definitely a big source of inspiration to coming here. So, uh, yeah, if, if, if anyone else, uh, is making their way to Brazil specifically, uh, get in touch. Uh, I, I think we'd love to have, uh, a wider circle here with more permanent ties to the place. Yeah, certainly. And uh, happy new year to everyone from Salvador da Bahia. Excellent. And happy new year from Natal, Christmas town, Brazil. All right. Thanks guys. This has been Palladium podcast, uh, and we'll be talking Palladium four for a while. So I'm looking forward to that. We'll see you all next time. <laughs>